Hey everybody, it's good to see you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the Summit. Uh, Happy Easter to you and so glad you could be with us. Uh, Like Andy said, we are kicking off a brand new teaching series and we try to come up with all sorts of kind of artistic, clever ways to communicate this. Uh, But I just kind of want to put my cards on the table from the very beginning and just say uh, I just want to be as simple and to the point as possible. Uh, We titled this Meeting Jesus because here's the win, is that we want you to meet Jesus. We want you to meet meet Jesus. The way we're going to do it is tonight and for the following five weeks, we are going to introduce you to five people who met Jesus for the very first time and they were forever changed as a consequence. And what we're hoping for you is that as we kind of study their encounters, you have the opportunity to meet Jesus as well and be forever changed uh, as a consequence uh, also. Now, uh, we're going to dive into the story of a man named Peter. Peter meeting Jesus for the very first time and being changed. But before we do that, let me just say this on the front end. Um, Kind of of the big challenge for me and what I'm trying to uh, accomplish uh, this evening is the fact that, you know, I know that uh, we live in Denver, and Denver is, you know, it always tops the top, uh, you know, most skeptical cities in America and least likely to believe in Christianity uh, in America lists. But in spite of that, the fact that we live in America, the fact that we have grown up in American culture, it means that kind of uh, most of us have had enough encounters with Christianity. Uh, to, we've come to the point where we've become so familiar with Jesus that meeting Jesus really isn't that enticing of an idea. Um, I kind of think of it like almost like a, uh, an immunization uh, where you get kind of just enough of something uh, not to obtain the full real thing. And that's kind of what happens when you grow up in the United States. You're going to get just enough of Jesus. Maybe it comes from, um, you know, your parents making you go to church growing up and you really resented that and didn't enjoy that. I mean, maybe it comes from watching movies that aren't even about Jesus but use Jesus as a punchline or an episode of South Park. Uh, maybe it's, you know, checking out at the Safeway uh, over on Park Avenue in U.S. and seeing that Jesus is on the cover of Time Magazine as he is this time of year because it's always their best-selling issue. Kind of what happens through that regular rhythm of life is you and I, we obtain enough familiarity with Jesus to, to not really kind of get the real Jesus. And that's the goal. We want you to meet Jesus so you can really receive the real thing, to meet the real uh, person. And, and it was interesting. I was actually, I, I, I saw a guy who made an incredible observation about this in an article I was reading this week. Uh, it was actually Larry King, who doesn't identify himself as a Christian, but the famous uh, author and interviewer and uh, TV host. And uh, they were interviewing Larry King, and he was kind of reflecting back on the entirety of his uh, career. And he, he was reflecting on the fact that he's interviewed uh, or had somewhere over 30,000 interviews, and he's interviewed the most famous people, anybody who's anybody for the last few decades, the last seven presidents of the United States, all the way back to Gerald Ford. And he was reflecting on his entire career. And somebody asked him, they said, if you could go back and you could only meet one person, if you could do it all over again and you could only interview a single person, meet a single person, who would that person be? And you know what he said without even thinking about it? He said, I would meet Jesus Christ. And I would ask him if he is who he says he is. And here's what he went on to say. He said, the answer to that question would explain history for me. And I think that is such an incredibly perceptive understanding of the magnitude of what it means to meet Jesus from a man who doesn't even claim to follow Jesus. I mean, just kind of objective observation reflects this. I mean, he says that history... is built upon Jesus. I mean, you see this. Our calendar is built upon Jesus. Uh, B.C., before Christ, A.D., ad dominum, the year of our 
Lord. You see that more books have been written about Jesus than anybody else who's ever lived, and it's not even close. You even saw today, for example, that Jesus uh, was a worldwide trending topic on Twitter. He was actually, I think, like eight of the top ten trending. The other two, I think, were about weed, because today's 420. Thanks for being with us instead of down the street at the weed party, but you're with us. And uh, Jesus, he, he made eight out of the ten top trending topics in Twitter. And so you understand there is this historical, world-encompassing recognition that really he is the most important person who ever lived. He shapes history. And if he can shape history, he can consequently shape and change your life and mine as well. And I think King's observation is really good. Now, I think with King's observation, probably as he was saying this, he wasn't thinking to himself, well, like, I would actually have the opportunity to do that. And probably even for some of you here tonight, uh, you're, you're probably, um, you know, maybe skeptical of Christianity. Maybe, you know, maybe you're just lukewarm about Christianity. And, and maybe you even think to yourself, like, okay, this sounds good. Um, I would love to meet the real Jesus. Uh, it's not really possible. And kind of the extent of my experiences from growing up in church and what I've read in Time Magazine is this, is this as well as I'm going to get to know him. It's, it's kind of impossible now that we live 2,000 years separated that I would really be able to meet this man upon whom history is hinged. And I would just say to you that tonight you have an incredible opportunity to meet the real Jesus. We're not going to bring him on stage and interview him. That would be, uh, make for a very eventful Easter. We're not going to do that. But here's what we're going to do. We are going to study who he is through the eyes of a man named Peter who meets him for the very first time and is forever changed. I mean, we're talking on a normal week, in a normal weekday, just doing life, and he encounters Jesus, the real, raw Jesus. I'm not talking the Jesus that's been tainted by the experience that you had growing up in church or what that relative said to you in the name of Christ. I'm talking the real, unfiltered, raw Jesus Christ, and Peter is change. And what I think you're going to see is that you are meant to be changed as a consequence as well. And so uh, let's look at the story that we just read and let's see like what happens to us when we meet this Jesus who alters history and our lives. Now tonight, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see, um, we're going to focus kind of exclusively on the last four verses that we read, verses 8 through uh, 11. They, they, they really provide for us the simple heart of the Christian faith. They really give us kind of three things that happen to us uh, when we come and meet Jesus, and we'll talk about those. But let me just first give you a little bit of, context, little bit of context of uh, what's happened up to this point, so this kind of makes uh, sense of what's going on. So this book, Andy said... <clears throat> was written by a man named Luke. Luke was tremendously educated. He was a doctor, and he wrote this book. In fact, if you read the the opening of this book, he says, I wrote it in order to provide an orderly and reliable account so that you can understand all that Jesus has done and taught. That's why he wrote this book. He wrote this book so people like you and me can meet and understand who Jesus is. And what's happened in the first few chapters is people have begun to get kind of close to Jesus, and Jesus is just kind of changing lives left and right. And what you see right here in particular is, is like the anticipation is really starting to grow. I mean, uh, you know, it says in verse 1, it says, um, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in onto him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So what's happening is like a crowd, you know, a crowd has literally started to follow Jesus wherever he goes, wherever he teaches, and they kind of corner him at this lake, and they start pressing in on him to the point that if he's not going to get dunked, he actually steps into a fisherman's boat, fisherman's boat named 
Peter, and, and he basically finishes teaching from there, and then he tells Peter, I got to get away from the crowd, press in to the middle of the lake. And Peter says, okay, I'll do that. And uh, then he tells Peter, he says, Peter, I want you to put your nets over the water and take more fish. Peter, the fisherman, says, we've had a really bad day catching fish. Uh, it hasn't gone so well, but you seem like an important guy, so I'll do it. And he reaches out and he pulls this, so many fish that the nets literally start to break, and Peter freaks out. And he freaks out because what he understands is he recognizes that what's happened before his eyes is more than just like, wow, like that was a really impressive trick that you played. He realizes that he has witnessed a miracle. He's witnessed a miracle and that he's in the presence of the divine. And I want you to see what he does. Look at verse 8. He meets Jesus, and look what Peter does. When Simon Peter saw it, when he saw what Jesus did, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, depart from me, For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Do you see this? The very first thing that Peter does when he meets Jesus, the very first thing that we do when we meet Jesus is we confess. We meet Jesus and we confess. Peter says to him, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And you think there's so many other things that he could have said, like that was really impressive. Could you show me how to do that? So I start making bank as a fisherman. Thank you so much. I get to take over the, off the rest of the month. I'm so appreciative. But no, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. What's happening in this moment is Peter is recognizing he is not just seeing a miracle, but he is sharing a boat with the miracle performer. He is sharing a boat with the divine. He is sharing a boat with the perfect creator, God of the universe himself. And he totally melts down and freaks out and confesses. And I know because from our American perspective, you know, kind of like we're so familiar and nonchalant about spirituality that proximity to divinity seems like no big deal whatsoever. But Peter, a real man in real history, gets close to the perfect God of this universe himself, and he confesses his sinfulness and shortcomings. Now, let's go deeper. Like, why? Why is that like what spills out of him as soon as he understands who Jesus is. It's kind of like a peculiar thing for him to shout out. And I think, I think this really starts to make sense when you understand, here's what we all have in common, uh, even we have in common with Peter. I mean, human beings are pretty much the same anywhere at any time. And what we all kind of have in common is that, is that if you're normal, you tend to judge kind of how you're doing based on the people who are near you and around you. You know, does that make sense? You tend to judge how you're doing based on the people who are near you and around you. Let me just give you a, a simple example from my own life, and maybe you've done the same thing. Um, when I was in college, I took a calculus course. Now, um, what you need to understand, some of you groaned already, so um, you can resonate with the way I felt. Um, I, was, I majored in history in college, and math was just not my strong suit. The other day, uh, we were having dinner with friends, and I had to calculate a 15% tip. And uh, I'll be honest, like, I almost blacked out. Like, my brain was just, like, really struggling to be able to kind of wrap my mind around that number. And so calculus was a bit of a struggle for me. And I remember distinctly the, the, the first time that we took an exam and the teacher was passing the graded exams back. And, you know, it, no matter kind of what you did in school, this experience is largely the same, um, where you have your uh, table and the, the, the professor takes the graded exam and places it uh, face down in front of you. And then, especially if you're not very confident about how you did, you don't just, like, flip that thing over. What do you do? You, like, peek, 
right? So you like kind of like stand away from it like it's dangerous, and you just kind of like peek under the corner. Now, I do this, and I wasn't sure how I was going to do, and I look underneath the corner, and uh, I see, circled in red, the number 40. Not like 40 out of 50, not like 40, like 40 out of 100, like as in uh, F minus, if the grade uh, F minus uh, existed. Now, um, I'm going to be honest with you. My first instinct in that moment was not to despair about how bad I was at math. It was really kind of think to myself, like, well, surely this isn't right. You know, like, surely there's something wrong with the test. Surely somebody... And so I, I thought to myself, like, I wonder what the person to the right of me did. Did any of you do this when you did really bad on an exam? Like, I wonder how the person next to me did. So I did, like, the fake stretch thing, like, ugh, you know, ugh. And I'm, like, you know, timing myself perfectly as my neighbor to the right of me is looking at their grade. And I'm not kidding. I'm not making this story up. I look, and this dude got a 25. I am not joking. He got a 25. And I'm going to tell you something. I felt much better about myself. I was like, I killed this thing. You know, like, I might have gotten a 40 and failed, but this dude got a 25. And at least I'm not as stupid as this guy to my right. Now, this is the way that all of us kind of go around doing life and thinking about ourselves. We say that nobody's perfect and it makes ourselves feel very good about ourselves. And what particularly makes us feel good is the fact that, you know, while we recognize that we're not perfect, we can point to a lot of people who we identify as being far less perfect than us. So you probably do with this. Like, okay, I understand that I get angry sometimes, but at least I'm not as angry as that guy on the news who murders people. Makes me feel much better about my my, my anger problem. Or, you know, maybe I'm not very good with my money, but at least I'm not as bad as that friend over there who's always compulsively shopping when she gets stressed. At least I'm not, I'm not that bad. It makes me feel very good about myself. Or, you know, whatever it is, I know that I'm not perfect, but what makes me feel much better about myself and the way I'm living in my shortcomings is I can point you to a lot of people who are doing uh, far worse than I am. And so even though we might be grabbing 40s in the game of life, we can point to a lot of people who are doing 25s and feel much better. Now, let's replay that scenario. Let me ask you a question. What if, as I was doing kind of my fake stretch thing to the right to see how my neighbor did, um, what if instead of him getting a 25, he got 105? Like 105, circled in red, this dude got the bonus question right, smiley face, exclamation points. Well, in that moment, I would despair, wouldn't I? I would despair because finally my shortcomings are put in the proper perspective in the light of perfection. And that's what's happening for Peter. He's finally, his entire life, he's been doing life around other broken, sinful, jacked up, messed up human beings. And then he gets in the boat with the perfect God of the universe himself. And finally his shortcomings and sinfulness are put in the proper perspective, and he despairs, and he confesses. He confesses that he's fallen short of the standard that God has placed on his life. That's what it means to sin. That's what he's saying when he's sinned. It means to miss a mark. It means to miss a standard, to fall short, and he's confessing. Now, we're going to see what Jesus does with that confession, but here's the thing that you need to understand. The first step, if you really want to meet Jesus, if you really want to meet Jesus, and I hope you do, Your first step is not proving to him how good you are, but actually confessing how bad you are. Do you see that? The first step in Christianity, if you're interested in becoming a Christian, if you're interested in 
Understand who Jesus is. Your first step is not trying to prove how good you are. It's instead confessing how bad you are. Now, this is tremendously counterintuitive because in every other area of your life, you're always trying to prove how good you are. If you want to get a good job, you better have the best resume in order for you to get hired. If you want to date an attractive uh, female or male, uh, you better you know, make yourself look as attractive as possible and be cool and be interested in bands that you probably don't really like, but you know, you know they like and it seems cool you know, and hipsterish if you like them. Like, you're always trying to prove how good you are to qualify yourself in order to be accepted by the people who matter the most. But it's the other way with Christianity. Peter meets Jesus for the very first time, and he doesn't come kind of confessing his religious resume. Well, look how obedient I am, and look how much I go to church, and look at all that I do. What does he do? The first step for him is confessing how bad he is. It's beautiful. It means that all of us can qualify for grace. Not all of us can be attractive enough. Not all of us can be smart enough. Not all of us can be financially wealthy enough. Not all of us can be obedient enough for God. But all of us can be bad enough. Isn't that great news? And all of us can qualify for the unbelievable grace of God. It doesn't require you to be good enough. It requires for you to finally come to the place where you're humble enough to confess that you're not good enough. And look, I know, I know that for some of you, as you hear that, you kind of think to yourself, like, wait a second, wait a second. I know that I'm not perfect and nobody's perfect, but I'm way better than the people around me. And I would say you are misunderstanding the very heart of what's being taught here. Elsewhere in the Bible, sin, the sin that Peter is confessing is described like a disease that has corrupted who we are. And how are you healed from a deadly disease? Do you go around kind of being like, well, I know I'm terminally ill, but at least I'm not as terminally ill as my buddy over there. Like, no, like, that's not going to work. How, how are you healed of a deadly disease? You finally confess the reality of your condition to somebody who can do something about it. And that's what Peter is doing in this moment. He is finally coming to grips that I am not a very good person in light of perfection. I am a sinner and I have fallen short He is confessing the reality of his condition to the saving and healing God who can really do something about it. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely, absolutely beautiful. So you want to meet Jesus? It doesn't start with you going to church and doing all the right things. It starts with confession that you've fallen short and that you need him to forgive you and to redeem you, and to reconcile you. Now, I want you to see what happens next. So we see when we meet Jesus, we confess. Now, look at what happens next. When we meet Jesus, we're comforted as well. So we confess, but here's the really good news. We're comforted after this. Now, we're going to look at how Jesus responds this way. Let me just, let me just even think about this. For, let's, let's just think about this for a second, because there's a lot of ways that Jesus could respond. And let me just ask you a question. Think about this in your head for a second. Why is it, why is it, that you and I are so terrified of having people around us know the worst parts of our lives. Like, why is that? Well, if you're normal, it's because, like, I am tremendously afraid that as soon as you learn my weaknesses, you are going to use my weaknesses 
uh, against me. And so, um, you know, your kids find out what you're really bad at, what you've done wrong, and they'll use it against you in a fight. Or your boss finds out where you've really messed up, and he'll use it to fire you. Or, um, you know, a a competitor in business finds out uh, where your greatest weaknesses are, and they use it to steal customers away from you. We're reused to a normal rhythm that somebody, you know, I I tell you what's worse, the worst parts of my life, and you're not comforting me, you're condemning me, you're, you're, you're using me. And look at how Jesus responds, though. Jesus responds not with condemnation, but comfort. So look at Jesus' response. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Look at that. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to reject you. I am going to accept you, and I'm going to use you for my purposes and for my glory. Isn't this amazing? I mean, this is the pinnacle of the grace of God and what makes Christianity so beautiful. And I hope, for those of you who are on the cusp, that it would entice you that Jesus Christ, he's, we've already seen he's God. And so because he's God, he knows everything about you. He knows what's gone through your head. He knows what's gone through your heart. He knows what you've done with your hands. He has seen the worst. He already knows the worst parts of your life. I mean, we're talking the parts that you won't tell anybody about, you wouldn't tell your spouse about, you don't even talk to yourself about because you're trying to suppress it and repress it so I don't have to think about this again. He sees it all. And what does he do to the man who confesses? He says, don't be afraid. I accept you and I'm going to use you and I'm going I'm to love you. And again, this is just what makes Christianity so unique and unlike any other kind of philosophical system in terms of how the world works. Because what are we used to? We're used to, in every other sphere of life, as soon as somebody finds out what's bad about me, we are rejected. And I will not be accepted and loved until I clean up my life and I look the way that you want me to look. In fact, I was even, I was telling uh, some of the guys on our staff this week this story um, it happened to me back in middle school, so you can already tell it's going to be a really embarrassing story. Um, middle school did not go very well for me. Um, I had a significant bi- battle with acne and got called pizza face in the lunchroom uh, every once in a while. I know. I'm okay. Okay, this is not a counseling session. I know. It was pretty bad. And, uh, and now, do, do you remember back in middle school when you, like, really liked someone? Um, you know, and I guess, like, maybe you would sit at the same lunch table together, and that would mean that you guys are dating. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember you do this. Like, what would you do if you really liked someone and started, wanted to start dating? You go have, like, a really, like, thoughtful, emotionally deep conversation with them, right? No, I'm just kidding. Like, you wouldn't do that whatsoever. You would find a friend, and you would kind of get them to a place where you'd be like, hey, will you go talk to her for me because I am a coward? So um, in middle school, I did this. And um, I remember this one time, um, it was a recess, and uh, my friend, you know, I kind of, I kind of uh, coerce him into going to talk into this girl, and she's across the playground, so I, you know, ask her if she likes me and if she's interested, and check yes or no or whatever. I can't remember exactly what it was. And so I send him um, uh, across the playground, and uh, he goes across the basketball courts, and he goes past the uh, the playground and everything, and uh, he talks to her, and I see them talking off in the distance, and they're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and then he walks back, and I'm like, okay, well, what did she say? What'd she say? What'd she say? And um, he said, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. What do you want? What do you want the first? And uh, I was just like, man, just tell me, okay? This is terrible. Just tell me. He's like, well, here's the good news. The good news is uh, that she thinks that she could uh, maybe be interested in dating you. I'm like, okay, well, that's great. What's the bad news? It's like, well, she said um, that she won't date you as long as you have those zits on your face. (laughs) Yes, pretty much like the worst thing that has ever happened to me. 
Uh, ever. I know. I just feel like as I tell these stories like this, I know. Well, you may be able to pay attention or you're just going to feel so sorry for me for the rest of this that you're just going to totally tune me out. I know. Uh, it was awful. It really happened. I can't make this stuff up. Um, you know, so um, that, I mean, I, like you guys go, oh, like that happened to me. That, that happens to you. That happens to all of us all the time. <laughs> Don't you understand? Like all the time there are people in our lives saying, I will love you as long as you clean up this part of your life. I will accept you as long as you are attractive to me. Uh, I will uh, uh, commit myself to you as long as you are meeting my needs and giving me, like, this is an experience we all have. And here's Jesus Christ. In the moment where Peter confesses the absolute worst parts of his life, saying, don't be afraid. I love you, I accept you, I'm going to use you for my purposes and for my glory. And what I hope you see here is that's not just, what I hope you see here is that's not just inspirational, but I hope what you would see is, like what's not happening in this moment is Jesus just saying, well, like, don't worry about it, like, sin's not that big of a deal, like, nobody's perfect. You're right, there are people who are a lot less perfect than you are. No, I mean, Jesus knows that in order for him to make a statement like this, it is going to come at a cost to himself. I mean, Jesus understands that when somebody confesses there's brokenness, like anytime there's brokenness in any aspect of the world, there are always a consequence to bear. I mean, you break a lamp over at your friend's house, I mean, either you are paying to fix that lamp or that friend is saying, oh, no, it's no big deal. But, I mean, the reality is is they're absorbing that cost onto themselves. Or you break the law, you're either going to pay the penalty for that law or that person's not going to press charges. But, I mean, it's more than that. They are going to absorb that crime onto themselves. And when Jesus Christ is telling Peter and telling us who confess, do not be afraid. He's not saying there's no consequences. He's saying there's very real consequences for our sin and shortcomings and brokenness. But he is proclaiming that he will absorb those consequences onto himself. That's the heart of the Christian faith, of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, even though he was perfect, is condemned and goes to a cross and dies. And in that moment, he is bearing the weight, the consequences for crimes and sins and shortcomings he did not commit. I did. You did. We did. So that he can say to us with absolute grace and love, do not be afraid. And resurrects three days later. It's what we celebrate here at Easter, proclaiming that he not only forgives, but he He gives victory over the greatest enemies that humanity has ever faced. Satan, sin, death, and hell. And by grace, through faith, his victory becomes our victory. I hope you see that. I hope you see that on one hand, you are seeing unbelievable grace for Jesus to proclaim to this man in the height of his sinfulness. I see you for who you really are, and I love you and accept you as nobody else does. But at the same time, That sort of comfort that is offered comes at a cost. Jesus understands it comes at a cost to himself. And he will have to go to the cross to bear the weight of his brokenness. And and ours as well. Now, look at what happens to Peter then. So, like, he's received this incredible grace. And look at what happens next. Third and finally, when we meet Jesus, we're changed. We're changed 
as well. And look at verse 11. Peter's so changed. Look at this. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything. I mean, when he says everything, it means he left his friends, he left his family, he left his job. It's kind of like that scene, um, you know, you've probably seen this in movies before where somebody just gets kind of like so fed up with the way their life is going. Like, they're just like, I quit. Like, in the middle of the day, they're like, you can't quit. Like, I'm going to quit. And they just walk out and say, what are you, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I just can't do this anymore. That's like what Peter's doing. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I do know that I'm going to go and follow him. I'm, I'm changed. They left everything and followed him. Like, why would he do that? Because when you encounter this type of grace and this type of love and this type of mercy and this type of compassion, I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like almost getting close to a grenade that explodes, like a grenade of grace and of love and of mercy, where, I mean, you just can't help being changed when you're close to it. Like, you can't help but be changed when you get close and, and really understand that this type of love is for you. I mean, you understand this. Like, you see a story of a random act of, of kindness in the news, and it compels you to want to be kind as well. It, it's changing you a little bit. Your friend demonstrates mercy and kindness and forgiveness to you. It changes you a little bit. You want to be gracious and kind and merciful in return. I was even, I was watching this movie, and it's kind of this small um, independent movie, but it, it was, it was, Sorry, I feel like I said that like, look how cultured I am. I didn't mean it um, in that way. But it's a story of, um, it's a story of uh, this, this kind of guy and girl who grew up in this Japanese fishing village. And um, in it, the, um, the, the boy and the girl kind of had, the, you know, you've seen movies like this where they had this kind of like, you know, puppy love romance in their, in their childhood. And, um, you know, but it never works out or whatever. And they grow up and kind of the paths that their village had laid out for them is that he would go on to be a very poor fisherman and uh, she would go on to be a prostitute. But his love for her, like, never waned or declined. And uh, he resolved, he was like, okay, like, I'm going, even if it takes me years, I'm going to save enough money in order to spend one night with her. So he does. He begins saving and saving and saving. It takes years, and he finally, after these years of labor, has enough money in order to purchase one night with the woman that he's always loved. And so uh, he, he kind of makes the deposit, and she shows up, and she kind of assumes that it's going to be like any other night. And uh, before kind of anything can happen, he says, wait, wait. It's like, I brought you here not to take advantage of you. I brought you here so that you can be respected and so that you can relax and rest in a way that you probably haven't in years. And so if you just want to sleep, like that would be great. And she does. The next morning she leaves. And it seems like life has just kind of completely gone on as normal. And then a few weeks later he hears a knock on the door. And it's her. And she is weeping. He says, what's wrong? And he looks at her and he says, or she says, you have ruined me. I'm not able to go back to the way that I always lived after that night of love you extended to me. You can't help be changed when you really get close to radical, sacrificial, gracious love. I mean, it alters our lives. That's what's happening up here. That's what I would hope would happen to many of you. Because when you really meet Jesus, I'm not talking like you had a bad experience growing up in the church that talked about Jesus. I'm really sorry that you experienced that. It is absolutely, absolutely terrible. But that's not meeting Jesus. 
I'm talking when you really meet Jesus, not um, you read the books on the New York Times bestseller list that mention all the conspiracies about Jesus like the Da Vinci Code. When you really meet Jesus, I'm not talking like you once took a class back in college where a professor made some kind of offhanded comments about how this is nothing more than a big kind of intellectual conspiracy. I'm talking about when you really meet Jesus in the way that Peter met Jesus, and you understand that he sees you for who you really are. Instead of rejecting you, he accepts you, and he accepts you to the point that it comes at a cost to himself. That's how far he's willing to go in order to accept you. That his hands would be pierced, that his, his feet would be pierced, and that he would bear the consequences for our brokenness and our sin and would resurrect three days later victorious, and that his victory becomes our victory. That when that becomes real to you, I would say to you, you could never be You have to be changed as a consequence. So you see with Peter. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And look, I know. I know that it probably seems like a very extreme reaction. I know that like kind of in our American mindset, we're like, well, man, like, take it easy. You know, like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, just settle down a little bit. I mean, Peter understands that when you get close to Jesus, he demands this level of radical response. In fact, C.S. Lewis, it's a famous quote, we've used this countless times, but he said that one of the great mistakes of Western culture is the belief that you can have a neutral, lukewarm response when you meet and encounter Jesus. He says there's a lot of people in our culture who go around and say, for example, that Jesus is nothing more than a good moral teacher that's meant to bring a little bit of inspiration and make you a little bit of a better person. He says, it doesn't work that way. When you read Jesus, you've got one of three options. You can write him off as a liar. You can write him off as a lunatic because he was claiming to be God. Or you can bend your knee and worship him as Lord and say, command my life. What you're seeing is when Peter encounters the real Jesus, he responds with the latter. And I think when we meet the real Jesus as well, we are meant to respond and be similarly changed. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray But we're going to give you the opportunity to really think and and respond in the way that Peter has responded. So let me just pray, and then I'll kind of explain next steps to you. Um, The way that, here's what I want you to think to yourself as we're praying. Um, I would ask yourself two questions. One, who do you say that Jesus is? I think it's a really important question. I mean, even somebody like Larry King understands that he is the one upon whom history is hinged. I think that's the first question you need to ask yourself. And if Jesus is who he says he is, what does it mean for you to leave everything and follow him? What does it mean to really follow him as Lord of your life? So I would just be thinking about that. Let me pray for you. And then let me just give you some potential next action steps uh, in order to take. God, we thank you so much um, that this thing is real. And that you, I don't know, in spite of all the ways that our faith has been distorted and corrupted and abused, there are beautifully pure stories like this where a man meets Jesus for the very first time and his life has changed. I mean, it has rocked to its core. And what I would pray is that we in this room would have um, a similar response, similar seriousness, not to think that we're too dignified for this, not to think we're too educated for this, not to think, oh, you know, we're cool and we're urban and, uh, we, you know, we're, we're 
self-controlled. No, to, to understand that when you meet a man like Jesus who demonstrates this level of love, we cannot be helped but be changed in its wake. And so God, I pray that um, we would respond accordingly, that we would say that you are who you say you are and that we would leave everything and follow you, that we would be willing to follow you, that we would be willing to leave anything and everything that is impeding us from doing so. Please do that. We ask all these things in your powerful name.